Welcome to The Field. I'm your host, Zoe Pallier, and today's guest, Joseph Lauren, was the first Canadian ever to be criminally convicted and serve a federal prison sentence for insider trading. A former Bay Street lawyer, Joseph's insider trading career lasted for many years, during which he made millions of dollars. The scheme cost him more than three years in prison and cost the life of his best friend and co-accused. After his release, he struggled to find employment, being turned down repeatedly due to his criminal record. Ultimately, he landed at Restorative Justice Housing Ontario, where he has dedicated his life to housing formerly incarcerated people. Just a quick warning, in this episode, we discuss death by suicide. If this is a triggering topic for you, please exercise caution. Season one of The Field is brought to you by Castles, Brock, and Blackwell. Castles has one of the largest business law practices in Canada and is a market leader serving all sectors for over 130 years. Full transparency, I work at Castles and am beyond grateful for their generous support of this podcast. The things I love most about Castles are the firm's commitment to promoting a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive firm and their ongoing support of the communities in which they operate. I look forward to sharing more about some of the exciting initiatives taking place at Castles over the course of the season. To find out more about Castles, check out castles.com or on Twitter at Castles, C-A-S-S-E-L-S. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us here in the field. Really looking forward to diving into your story. Thank you. So to start, can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and your life before your arrest? Incarceration, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I don't. It's not. I don't think it was terribly interesting. I would probably. I think a normal lower middle class family. I was went to university. I had good enough grades that I, I was able to get into law school after two years. Uh, graduate, you know, probably top 10% of my class, started articling, which is a pro- you have to do it for a year before becoming a lawyer at arguably that time, one of the, probably the best uh, law firm in Canada. And I sort of fell into the world of inside trading after that, when I started becoming a lawyer, because a friend of mine, uh, so uh, when I was articling, uh, I had uh, been in the main lobby of the firm. There's about 20 of us uh, students in that area. And a summer student comes over wearing white leather driving shoes. And I I noticed these driving shoes, which seemed, seemed to be inappropriate attire for a law firm, and I knew what the driving shoes looked like. So I said, why are you wearing driving shoes? And this uh, summer student said, well, I just bought a car that I made with money I made on a deal I just worked on. Now, at this law firm, we were paid biweekly on salary, not commission on deals you worked on. So I took that to mean that he made money insider trading. I told my best friend who was working in another firm that story. And actually, neither of us remembers how it started, but one of us must have said, hey, let's try it too. And uh, we started getting into the world of inside trading. The first deal, we made $181. And within about a year to two, we were making, you know, million dollar deals at a time. So million, two million, et cetera. And uh, life changed uh, for the better and then uh, eventually for the worse after that. Yeah. Wow. And so how long did that go on for before eventually things blew up for you? It actually went, uh, went on for about 10 years and then stopped. So uh, about the nine or 10 year mark, uh, we had a achieved our financial goals. So initially we just fell into it as I discussed. And maybe after a period of time, we we're making so much money, we started taking it seriously and said, well, you know, we're, or maybe we should have a financial goal and then we stop so we don't get caught. And we achieved that goal and exceeded it. And then, uh, but maybe eight or nine year mark, we ended it all, split the money equally, went our separate ways. And then the 9-11 happened and the market crashed and my co-accused, he was fully invested in the stock market. He lost all his money. And he came back to me and said, hey, let's do the inside trading thing again. 
And my biggest regret, you know, I hear other TED talks about, you know, ethics speakers. I say, my biggest regret is I wish I never started. I never, I always find that to be disingenuous. My biggest regret was when my co-accused came back to me and said, let's do it again. I should have said, uh, no, I don't want to do it. I thank you for the lifestyle I have now, but here's X million dollars. Go away. I don't want to do it again because I had the money. I could have said that and I didn't. And I remember thinking about it. So I made the conscious choice to, you know, keep the money in, in some sense and go back to a, a lifestyle of inside trading, which I didn't enjoy and I, he didn't enjoy either, but it's, it's something we did. And we went back into the second time, but the second time I didn't take the same precautions as I did the first time. It might've been subconscious, might've been conscious trying to get caught to end it early. And so eventually we were identified and caught and then everything blew up and it went much worse than either of us could have imagined from the start. It ended up with my co-accused committing suicide the day he was supposed to fly with me to New York City to plead guilty. So no, obviously no one envisioned that in the beginning. And then for personally, you know, I, I spent time in a couple of maximum security prisons and some other prisons, some rough times. And then when I got out, I lost access to my son for over five years, not even a call, a text, a letter, mm. nothing, which is something you certainly never would envision when you started. So it's one of the reasons I do these talks. I speak to student groups, the law firms, um, corporations, investment firms, anyone, because if you had told me when I started, you could have X millions of dollars, but you will, your best friend here, he's going to be dead. He's going to lose his wife will not lose a husband. His son will lose a father and you yourself will lose access to your, your children for years. Who would make that deal? I certainly wouldn't make that deal. So I want, when I speak to groups, I want to make that possible consequence. Maybe it's a hundred to one, maybe it's a thousand to one, but it's possible because it happened to me and it could happen to you. And it's never worth the, whatever gains you might get from it. Mm -hmm. And so interesting how it's, you, you sort of, you get through this really long period of time where you're doing it and you don't get caught. And it's sort of easy, I imagine, to get to a point where you almost feel invincible. Yeah, it's, it's actually, there, was, there were times when uh, brokers and their compliance departments would call me. And for whatever reason, I'm very good under pressure. And I was, I gave plausible explanations enough that they just went away. So there was people who had suspicions at certain points in time, and I sounded reasonable enough that they went away. And, and I think sometimes there, I have examples where I believe brokers knew or believed, and they were just copying my trade. So I was more valuable to them as a source of information that they can make money off of and pass on to other clients. Mm. So I'll tell you one story. So one morning I have an inside trading deal and I put my order with my brokers, maybe a million and a half dollars worth of, of stock that I'm buying. And a few hours later, I get a call from a friend of mine in Vancouver and he says, you know, here's a, I know you trade stock. Here's a stock you should buy. And he's telling me the stock I just bought that morning. And I said, well, why are you telling me this stock? He said, well, my friend who's a broker in Toronto has a client in Toronto and this guy always gets inside trading deals and this is going to be another one. So my inside trading was known by my broker and rather than identify me calling the regulars in Canada, United States, he Obviously, he must have bet, he must have purchased his own stock on me, but he was so confident he's telling people across Canada about me. So my deal came back to me about three or two, three hours later. So I think, you know, it's what I say with, when I talk to regulators, if you want to stop this, you have to incentivize people to turn people like me in, like let them keep all the gains because to my, to that broker, I had many brokers for that broker. I was far more financially valuable as a, per, as a source of information than as, you know, a skin he can turn into the regular say, we caught somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, that's just reality. Mm -hmm. So eventually you're, you're caught and you plead guilty and yeah. what did you plead guilty to and how much time did you get? Okay. So I was identified, as soon as I was identified, I, I spoke to a lawyer and I said, look, I want to cooperate because initially the regulars came to me with a list of like 10 or 15 names of other professionals in Canada, United States, um, uh, lawyers, uh, investment bankers, et cetera. And they said, how are these people on this list part of your cabal of, you know, inside training? And I said, I don't recognize any of these names. And what happened was uh, professionals in, in North America were sort of duped to participate in our schemes by 
if my friend met someone on the street, he'd say, hey, what deal are you working on? And this person just being you know, conversational would tell him things and that would be enough to get us get them information from them. Or people would call a firm and say, uh, I want to hire you. Can you do a conflict search? And then my co-accused would find out more information about the deal and then would we pass it on to me, we'd buy it, et cetera. So people were, I thought, so I knew I had to cooperate right away, not necessarily for myself because I, I the way I looked at it was I played the game, I got, I got caught and need to be punished. But I said, if I don't cooperate right away, these 10, 15 people, their, their lives could be destroyed because I'm sure all their partners and their employers think they're, they must be part of these guys deal because how could they have so many coincidences they're involved in, in similar transactions. So I pled guilty, cooperated right away, but the matter dragged on for over a year because my co-accused had, I guess he was trying to negotiate a better deal, couldn't plead guilty. And then when he finally pled guilty, so I accepted three years, three months in Canada, and I had to fly to New York to also plead, and they were going to give me time served, the, the day of processing. And my co-accused received three years and nine months, I believe, and he was, again, fly to New York with me, and he may have had uh, an opportunity to get five more years in the U.S. for breach of fiduciary duty because he was a, a partner in a law firm, et cetera. So he had certain uns uh, an element of uncertainty I didn't have. But the day, as I mentioned, we were supposed to fly to New York. He jumped off a bridge, committed suicide. I flew to New York, very distraught. This is my complete best friend for 20 years. We talked every day before this this happened. And the judge, I maybe took pity on me, just gave me time served. And I started my sentence, came back to Canada and started my sentence uh, at Millhaven, which is a maximum security prison back then. And then it progressed to different prisons throughout Canada. Can you just take me back to that moment where you find out that your friend has just taken his life and what, what that was like for you? Uh, so my lawyer called me because I, I think we were supposed to meet at a police station first for processing before we go. And my lawyer called me and said, you know, by the way, uh, Gil, my, my co-accused best friend, had just committed suicide. They found his body at the bottom of a bridge. Uh, no, sorry. He first called me to say Gil has gone missing. And then he called me about half an hour to say his, his body's found at the bottom of a bridge. And my lawyer, very good guy, very professional, but maybe not the best social skills. He said, just so you know, he didn't suffer. He, it took him about half an hour to die, which was the worst thing I could possibly hear because I could imagine, you know, him jumping and thinking about everything in his life and then on the ground, you know, suffering death and maybe thinking about me and how we got to this point. It completely devastated me. I remember I had to sit down. I couldn't, I couldn't stand for a while. So when I got to New York, I really was distraught. So it was, you know, it was not an act I'm putting on for the judge. I am completely wrecked. I know my best friend because I'm in fantasizing in my mind. I'm going to meet my best friend in New York on the plane. We'll chat. We'll work it out. We'll get through this together and we'll be back, back to being best friends again. And now I come to this, you know, obvious realization. The fantasy is never going to happen in my best. And I'm thinking about all he's lost, his family's lost, all connected to me. And I was completely devastated. So it's, again, I always talk about the unforeseeable consequences. Who would know that would happen? I, certainly that day, I didn't think that was going to happen. It was completely de devastated me. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine. And so then, so you started out at Millhaven. And one thing I know about your story is that at some point you ended up at KP, and uh, which, sorry, is Kingston Penitentiary. Kingston Penn, yes. Kingston and Penn. there you had sort of this turning point moment yes. while you were there. Can you tell us about that? I'll tell you that story. So uh, at that time, this was Kingston Penitentiary, which was Canada's oldest operating prison. It was well over 100 years old. And it looked like it was almost like the Shawshank Redemption, the old bars, the, the bricks peeling, the paint peeling everywhere. So I got there and I walked into a range and a range is a collection of cells, 15 cells in the bottom, 15 on top. And it's, it's, I tell the story, it's just be amusing. We had one TV, 11 inch black and white TV for all 30 or so guys. And no one cares about giving batteries to, to inmates. So we have, so guys would put strings into the TV with popsicle sticks. So if someone wanted to change the channel, they pull the string up and down and then volume up and down back to their cell about 30 or 40 feet away. So it's, it's very bizarre thing. So oftentimes the guards would be difficult. They would just kick the strings and break the string out. So the next guy, when he had to get out, he had to put those popsicle sticks back in. 
anyway, it was the toughest, toughest place I've ever been. I'd say at least half of the guys had done like, you know, manslaughter and murder, really, really tough guys. So I'm there long enough by this point that I become, I'm offered the job of cleaner. Now, cleaner is an inmate who mops the floors and hands out the food. And I accepted that job because it would allow me to have access to the phones to call my kids after school. Because you, otherwise, in that prison, you were locked up 23 hours and 40 minutes a day, save for yard time, maybe comes every second day. So you never know when you get lo- unlocked. So I never know when I could call my kids. It might be past midnight or you know late at night or really early in the morning when I, I missed them from school. So I take the job as cleaner and I'm handing out the food and everything. And the guys in this range know I don't really belong. So they, you know, I don't fit in. I don't have the mindset. No one's seen me before through the prison system, whereas other guys have seen each other. So the guys would ride me a lot. And I decided early on that I would not let people intimidate me or pre- uh, you know, in prison. I would take a beating as opposed to get intimidated because I thought that would follow me throughout. So I would push back. So one, per- one inmate named Frankie, young guy, bigger than me, everyone knew him. So he'd probably done a lot of time in the system. Uh, he said something to me, uh, probably called me a pedophile, reference I was a pedophile because that's what he thought I was there for. And I insulted him back in a way that I don't remember. And I must have also crossed the prison line, the code. And all of a sudden, I remember the whole range of 30 guys went perfectly quiet because I knew I'd said something over the line. And then Frankie, loud enough for all 30 guys to hear, says, when my cell gets cracked open, which means opened up for shower time, when my cell gets cracked open, I'm going to come over to yours and I'm going to kill you. And my cell is unlocked, so I can't really lock the door because I'm the cleaner. And I know... He's going to at least try, he's obligated to at least try to kill me because he said it in front of everyone. And I remember that the, the, the range just broke up and they started betting. I was a three bag of chip to one underdogs because guys would bet uh, food in prison. So I was a, a big underdog in that fight. So I go back to my cell, I close my light and I start praying. I wasn't a real religious person, but I know nothing good's going to happen in the next five or 10 minutes because either I somehow win this fight and I get more prison time and hard to get to see my kids or I am maimed or maybe killed. And I, this is just a reality at that point in time. So as I, so then I start praying and I say, God, if you can help me get through this, I will t- try to take some good for others from the bad of my experiences and either said it loud in my head or said it loud in my voice. But I remember as soon as I did, I heard a loud explosion of metal that I never heard before in that prison. Boom. And then another one, boom. And then feet were stomping right towards my cell. And I said, oh, you know, Frank, I just assumed Frankie's coming with, a, with some other guys in the range to, to finish me off. And I, so I got ready, you know, thinking I'll do what I can. And all of a sudden, a hand reached out and grabbed the, the cage door and slammed it shut with a lock. And then four or five correctional officers ran down right past me. And as soon as I caught my, caught my breast, I started pushing my face against the bars to look down what was going on. And I saw two officer, officers with a stretcher. So they have a stretcher. They come in my view, and they go, they go out of my view for a moment. And I'm still watching what's going on. No one knows what's going on. And then all of a sudden the stretcher comes out and on that stretcher is Frankie having a, an epileptic seizure flailing around. They take him away. I never see him again. Now, depending on your view of the world, that was either an incredible coincidence or divine intervention. But to me, I, it happened exactly. It always gives me chills when I tell this story. I, to me, it, it's happened exactly at the moment I, I made a promise. So I felt obligated to keep that promise. So when I got out of prison, I searched a, a, a producer who's doing a, 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 I heard about doing a documentary on white collar crime prevention. I volunteered for that. So we made a documentary called Collard. And then when this uh, position I work at now as program director for restorative justice housing, Ontario came out, I said, I'll, I'll go for that. And because I'm trying to take some good from the bad for others. And when I do public speaking, I always say yes to it. Whoever asks, you know, they pay me or not. I always say yes, because I feel I have to keep that promise because I was so close to having my life. You know, it was bad at that time, but it could have been over and being, being not, not being melodramatic. It could have been over much worse. So I feel compelled to always try to help people if I can to, from my experience. So that's when I heard about your, your podcast. I said, well, I have to say yes. So I heard about yesterday. I guess here I am today. So 
I'm trying, at least I'm consistent, if nothing else. <laughs> and I'm so grateful that you said yes. So I want to dig a little bit more into the work that you're doing to help people in a minute. But before we get there, I want to go back to, so you serve the rest of your sentence and I want to take you back to the day that the doors open and you get to walk out a free man. You've now spent three years in prison plus. What was that experience like for you, sensory and otherwise? An excellent question. You know, I always say when I do these talks, uh, there's always a question no one's ever asked before. This is one I've never been asked before. And it's a great question because I remember getting out. I was driven from Fenbrook Medium Security Prison to Toronto and let out at Young and Dundas area. And I remember getting out and everything moves so fast. Like cars are moving. I hadn't seen cars in a long time. So cars are are zipping by. I see women walking around, which I hadn't seen for a long time. And everything looked technicolor. Everything was brighter because in prison, it's all grays or faded paints or, you know, and thick acrylic paint. It was so bizarre. So I would say about 15 minutes, I had to just adjust to seeing things move faster than it had been before. And I remember I was taken aback by that. So, wow. I can only imagine a lifer maybe inside 20, 25 years, it, it was probably much more dramatic for him because, you know, the technology had not changed that much in the few years that I'm gone. But so it was, it was very overwhelming. So I could see an older person who's been inside a long time. It, they would be overwhelmed by that experience because for you know, 15 minutes, I'm just standing there going, wow, what is going on? It was, it was so bizarre. It was, it was almost like a drug trip. If, if, you know, it was almost unreal to me. Yeah. And for anyone who is American and listening, Young and Dundas in Toronto or anyone who's not from Toronto, Young and Dundas in Toronto is like our slightly smaller equivalent of Times Square. It's where all the billboards are, all the traffic That's is, right. all the people That's congregate. Right. It's, it's a busy happening place. So if you go from a place where I was in isolation, locked in a cell for 23 hours and change a day by yourself. To now you're in probably the, the most dense populated part of Toronto, you know, Canada's major city, all at once, just dropped there. It's, it's, it was incredible. And uh, yeah, it's funny. I thank you for asking that question. I hadn't thought about that in years. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, and then after that, so then kind of what happens next and what was that re-entry period like for you? Well, what happened next is probably one, another reason why I do this job is trying to find a place to live when you have you know, I had at that time, maybe 10,000 negative Google searches about me. There's, you know, book written about me, articles all around the world, articles about me. So when you apply for an apartment, trying to get a place to live, people, if they do a criminal background check, I'm going to fail. And if they just do a Google search, I'm going to fail. And it was so incredibly difficult. So I finally was able to get a place by paying the entire first year's rent up front. And I was only able to do that because I had won a football pool. Uh, it's a lot, another side story, but I'd actually participate in a football pool at a friend's uh, law firm, and we actually ended up winning it. So I had eleven thousand something dollars. I took that as a lump sum, and I paid my entire first year's rent because I didn't want the landlord to Google me or do a credit check of me or do a criminal check of me. So I was like, "Here you go. I like this place. Here's the whole. Here, there's no risk. Here's all your money." So most guys out of prison cannot do that, obviously. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the reasons w- with this job here. I know how difficult it is if you have a criminal record. Or, or anyway, notorious to get a place to live because landlords, especially in a tight market, they'll choose the who's not the criminal to rent to for whatever reason. So what we do in restorative justice housing, we we rent the actual house ourselves, and then we look for ex ex offenders, or we call I call them ex cons. Actually, offenders prefer being called ex cons, believe it or not. So I look for ex cons who need a place to live but can't, by virtue of finances or their criminal record, get a place as good or, or you know even similar to that in any way. So we take them in and we treat them with respect and. And we charge below market rents and they use that as a stepping stone to move on the rest of their lives, maybe get a job, rehabilitate themselves, contribute back to society. And then everyone benefits, I would, I would argue. 
Definitely. And so, okay, housing is one big challenge that many mm -hmm. people face and employment is the other. Very difficult. So what was that like? Well, see, I think Canada is much worse off or behind the United States regarding employment of ex-cons. So when I when you apply to a job in Canada, there's always a question, a box says, have you been convicted of a criminal offense for which you've not received a pardon? It's written that way, sort of a mm -hmm. backhanded kind of way that, so, you know, if you say, if I say yes, I'm sure you never get the job interview. And if you say no, I guess they could, uh, they could check and they fire you for being untruthful. So I was haunted by that question everywhere. To get a job is so incredibly difficult. So I had friends who were lawyers and they would take me, they wanted to take me into their law firm, maybe, you know, get me some research job or things of that nature. And they couldn't really employ me because the law society in Ontario, where we are, Ontario, Canada, uh, they require if you bring someone on who has a criminal record into your firm, even on the floor, the same shared offices, you have to make an application to them. You have to have a hearing. You have to post a public notice. As many, many steps. And I didn't want to draw that kind of negative attention to friends because I still had some notoriety. Uh, no I was somewhat notorious. So I didn't want an article written in some newspaper about this firm brought me in. So I didn't want to. People were helpful to me. But I didn't want to hurt their careers in any way. So it was incredibly difficult to find a position. The position I have now is only because I am probably uh, being an ex-con uh, perfectly suited for it. So there's no discrimination against that. But I see in Canada, even groups that work in the sector, they discriminate in hiring against ex-offenders. They still have that same question. And I've talked to a lot of them. I said, look, you've got to show a preference for ex-offenders, not for me. I mean, show a preference because you can't understand how discouraging it is when you come out of prison, you've done your time, and you've committed to saying, I will reform myself, be a productive member of society. And then these things, these hurdles keep slapping you back. I wasn't asking for special treatment at all. I don't think any ex-con is, but just treat me like everyone else, uh, almost a clean straight. Some countries in Europe do it. I remember I was re researching myself on Denmark and they say, once you've done your time, they, they bring you back to society because why would they hold the stigma against you? Because it only hurts society. Let's say I couldn't find a job. Well, now I'm on social assistance for the rest of my days. And maybe I'm more inclined to commit crime than I would otherwise, or maybe do drugs or things like that. There's no upside for society as opposed to this guy's done his time. He's shown a commitment to, to reform. Let's let him contribute like anyone else would. And then he'll pay taxes and everyone benefits. So that's and that's so when I when I interview guys to bring into our house, I say, you know, I, I'm CEO has an obligation to change public reception of ex-offenders. So I want you to be not just a good tenant. I want you to be better than an average tenant in one of our places. And when you meet the landlords, I want you to be very friendly. And and because you have an obligation to look like so that you change their perception of what an ex-offender is. You know, you could be people think, oh, in Canada, especially less people go to prison in Canada than the U.S. So people think, oh, ex-prisoners are terrible people or scary or whatever. I want you to be, exceed that or change that perception. You're better than the average person so that they might in the future when our RGHO is gone, but they might be inclined to rent to someone else, another ex-offender, or they'll tell a friend and they might rent or give a job to an ex-offender. So that's how I look at it with my life. So I'm trying to always put a positive spin on being an ex-offender in my case. I've had actually, it's funny when I got, a, I had an opportunity to do inside training again, because I'm for whatever reason, I know what to look for. I see it. I've, I've not done inside training, even though I could, because it's come to me because I don't want to go to prison, but, but also I don't want to destroy the reputation that I'm trying to build back again. Cause it's, you know, I ruined my reputation the first time I could not survive mentally ruining it again. Mm -hmm. So that's why I tell the guys like, you know, you've done your time, just be a better person than an average person. And so people think, and be open about your, your criminal past. So that people think, well, you know what, maybe the, an ex-offender who's reformed is not that bad. I will give another guy five years in the future another a chance that I wouldn't otherwise, but for meeting this person or meeting me today or hearing me on this podcast today. Yeah, well, I, there's actually something. So someone that I interviewed, Desmond Mead, he's uh, an, an incredible man, also formerly incarcerated and works in Florida too. He was responsible for Amendment 4, which gave 
Floridians with registered felony convictions the right to vote and uses the term returning citizen instead of like ex-con or ex-offender, okay. which I love because it's like... I always like rehabilitant. I like rehabilitant mm, better. I like that too. I'm a rehabilitant. Yeah. I try to push that in when I was in private prison to parole. I didn't, it never really took. But I always said, call me a rehabilitant because you say offender. It's almost like you're in the process of continuing to offend, whereas a rehabilitant is always in the process of continuing to re- re- rehabilitate themselves. Yeah. And but it, it didn't catch on. Maybe I'm ahead of my time. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I really like that. And it is the whole, you know, ex-con, ex-offender, all of these things are connoted with you are a criminal, right? It's like that same right, stigma right. and label that follows people around. And so the the whole, I love what you're talking about in terms of having people try to, to make that mental switch to say, no, like I'm just a person like everyone else and I'm going to behave like one instead of feeling like right. you're showing up with something, you know, to hide or be ashamed of. Like what's the upside for society for discriminating against me? I'm, I, you know, I ask people that like, what is you, I've done my time. You can make my life harder afterwards, but how does that help you? Yeah. You know, other than me, you know, I'm not going to commit another crime, but some guy on the edge might, and I'm not going to go on social assistance, but someone else might have to. How does that help you by discriminating against someone like me? It, it doesn't. It's irrational. It's so true because I think when you really look at the big picture by doing what we're doing. And when I say that, I mean, discriminating against people who have a criminal records and creating this social stigma and the barriers to reentry. What we're actually doing is we're setting people up to fail, which is not only number one, the impact on the human being, of course, right, is so detrimental, but to our communities in the economy. These are people who could be productive members of the community, who could be giving back, who could be stimulating the economy and creating opportunities. And instead, it's from a community safety perspective, meaning that most people are are reoffending and going back into the system. So we're it's a system that totally fails. It fails on every front. And yet it gets more and more money and more resource. So it it's like this totally backward system. So someone asked me, they said, well, don't they have programs in prison? You can learn things. I said, I remember, I think it's all a scam because I was inside and uh, I was helping guys read documents and things of that nature. So one of my guys on my range, he was taking the high school equivalency. And when he graduated one day and he came, oh, I graduated high school equivalency. He did not know what half of two was. And that's a ex- real example because I was in charge of buying food for that range. And I said, well, you have enough money. He wanted two bananas. He said, I said, you have enough money to buy one, but uh, half of that. And he said, how much is that? Okay. So this, so I think they go through the motions of, of whatever programs inside to keep people busy, keep people employed in the system. I mean, I always say the system of justice exists to benefit those that administer it. It's not benefiting society with the tax money. It's not benefiting the guy, benefiting the guys that go through it. It's not benefiting the victim somehow. I would completely reform it. You know, no one's asked my opinion, but one day, you know, I, I'd like to give it that I, I would change the parole system. I would change the, the requirements inside prison. I would incentivize those that work in the prison systems, like tie some of their pay to the results they produce because you're producing a product that goes back in society. Well, I, if a guy commits a crime right away or goes on, on social assistance, you produce a, a faulty product. But if the guy gets a job, maybe re- reconnects with their family, that's what that's what the public as a whole wants. So let's tie some of the pay back to when people, prisoners are released, how if they don't re-offend re- re- in five years, well, you give a little bonus to the, the administration. They did a good job. But if they do, well, you don't give them a bonus. You have a little bit less pay because why else am I hiring you? You know, that, I would take a, a practical marketplace capitalist view of that to the prison system because what we're doing now is not working. It's not working in Canada. I would, I would assure you of that. And maybe perhaps America also. But it's, so 
That's what I would do. But no one's asked my opinion. In Canada, as I say, that they, we, we, it's more inclined people would shun an ex-offender. I, I've, uh, I've met other inside traders in the U.S. and other places, and they get brought in by regulars for their advice and to a- examine you know, cases and things of that nature. And when I was on parole, I, I wrote letters to the regulars saying, hey, by the way, when you interviewed me, you did a bad job. I, there's some mistakes you guys made. I will tell you what you made. And, and they just never got back to me to, to bring me in for free. I was asking for money. I said, bring me in, and I would tell you what you, I think you did wrong because I got, I got away with it for 15 years. So clearly, you did not do everything perfectly. Learn from me. I'm on parole. I'll give you what I know. But they never followed up on it. It's, I think it's Canadian mentality to rather shun someone as opposed to bring them in. Whereas Americans, were, I think they want to learn from anybody to be better. I found from the guys I've talked to. So they would, and I was in America, they would probably bring me in and say, okay, what did we do wrong? But uh, again, it's a Canadian mindset where we actually think we're better than Americans. We're more forgiving, et cetera. And personally, I would tell you, for it's, it's the exact opposite. Americans have been more welcoming to me, a Canadian. So I do public speaking. I get contacted by American firms, uh, law firms, investment banks, corporations, maybe 10 to 1. And I never advertise in the U.S. Whereas I've sent out emails to Canadian law firms and corporations and I get very few replies. So it, it's, it's entirely a mindset thing than anything else. Yeah, it's something that I think about a lot. I think that Canadians have this view that we're the kind of more progressive, nicer northern neighbor. And so it's like this isn't actually a problem for us. And I see this in especially with you know, issues with the justice system where, as we know, America incarcerates more people than anywhere else in the world. And I think everywhere else combined. Yeah. So clearly they have a problem and it's easy for Canadians to look below the border and say, oh yeah, well, you know, we're better than America. And America can't be the benchmark, first of all. <laughs> and second of all, no, right? It's The reality is if you actually examine what's happening in Canada, it isn't any better. No, and not. The problem, same problems exist here. And we require the same thought and attention to how can we reform the system and make it function better. Yeah. Our recidivism rate must be you know, similar to the U.S. It's, if we're so great, why isn't it near zero? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. Mm-hmm. And not uh, every guy I met in prison had been, you know, many, many times in prison or jail and progress up to prison, the system, et cetera. And, you know, or they, when they finish 20 years in prison, they still can't read. How's that? How's that allowed to happen? Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. But that's that's commonplace. It's not, not a, a strange example. So a question about the stigma. When you think about the stigma that people face post-release, are there any stories that stand out to you from your experience where you were really faced with experiencing that stigma? Well, it, it happened a lot. So uh, I, I interview. Oh, so I'll tell you a story. So I was a. Uh, Apply for a job at Ford, Ford Canada. So there was a job about you'd be a liaison between the office and the shop floor. And you had to write some sort of, uh, so there was a test to do this, uh, this job. So you, had, uh, you do the application, you, you get past the first hurdle, you do some uh, tests where you interp- reinterpret documents to make them more common language so you can interpret it. So I, I got to this day, I went, I went on stage number four of the interview. And by this point, no one had Googled me, no one had searched me at all. Stage four of the interview, and I get a call the person says, well, you come in tomorrow. I'm sure you're getting the job because no one's the person you're replacing. He's reviewed your, your answers. Your, your bet. You, he said he's better than me. So I was better than someone who'd done the job for you. So I'm driving to Oakville, Ontario for this job. And I get a call right in the middle saying, oh, I'm sorry, your interview is canceled. And I go, oh, it's very strange. Right. And so we'll be in touch. So I get home and I check my LinkedIn at that point, And LinkedIn allows you when someone checks your, your LinkedIn profile, it says who has checked it. And at that point, it said Ford Motor Company had checked my profile. So they finally had Googled me or done the next bit of research and they found out who I was and they rejected me. And I was completely devastated because I thought, wow, they had already, I thought by this point they had checked me out and they're giving me a chance. 
And I realized as soon as I, no matter how, and they said I'd done a great job. So, you know, so I, I had met the standard that they needed and they still rejected me only because of my past, not something I did now. I remember being completely devastated. And I thought, wow, if I was not as strong mentally at that time, I could have seen myself do something more self-destructive at that point or self-destructive at all at that point. And I could see how guys, if it happens to other people, they go back to the life of crime or drugs or things of that nature. Because I remember being completely devastated. I I probably did cry at that point going, wow, like I'm trying to get rebuild my life, get money together, get a job, support my children, et cetera. And I just got kicked as I'm driving to the interview. So of course, which I'm told is I'm going to be the job offer. So it it completely devastating. And and so when I hear about, so that's one reason I push groups that are in the sector of uh, justice and and rehabilitation sector. I push them when they're advertising for jobs, I'll send them a note saying, hey, this job says, you know, we'll do police background check. You're discriminating against people like me, not me, but like me, or you should be welcoming applications for ex-offenders. And fortunately, some groups now, I know the North Pine Foundation, they're open about hiring ex-offenders. They actually, for jobs that are related to ex-offenders, they want to have ex-offenders. And that's something, it's, it's, if you want change public perception to benefit society of ex-offenders, you must encourage the hiring of ex-offenders and to see what they can do. Give them a chance because it benefits everybody. You can pay them less. I can tell, I'll tell you, the ex-offenders I know, they'll work for less because they, they have so not been given a chance by people that when they get the chance, they're so grateful. They'll pay, they'll take less pay. And they, I would take less pay just to get the opportunity to give back to society and say, yeah, whatever I did 10 years ago, I'm not that person today. Give me a chance. Mm-hmm. And what about on the, the flip side of it after your release, is there anyone who stands out in your mind as someone who was willing to give you a chance? Well, I have to say that the group that I employs me now, because uh, I remember applying for the job and, and it was... It, an element of the job is you're, you're, you're contacting property managers and landlords, but you're also dealing with ex-cons who've done long periods of time. And because I've done time in maximum security prisons, I know the lingo, I know the mentality. There is a different mentality. If you've done a lot of time in prison, you look at things differently. So when I, when I had the interview, I said, you know, you can interview a lot of people, but I think I'm the best person you're going to interview for the job. And I will be disappointed if you hire someone else, not for me, but for you, because you've clearly look at something other than, you know, you've looked at something, my experience as a negative, as opposed to a positive. And in this case, this one position, it is a hundred percent positive. And so, and so when they gave me the opportunity, you know, I was very taken aback because I was grateful. So ever since then, I said, I will exceed expectations. I will work harder than you think. I will do more than you think. Not again, not just for me, but for the next ex-offender. And maybe they'll hear about my work for this organization. Another organization might be inclined to hire an ex-offender to give them a chance. And then everyone benefits sort of my, my goal. Well, and tell us a little bit about about the organization that you're working with and what you do. Okay, so it was a, a charity set up a couple a couple of years ago by people who've been through working in the justice system, so uh, lawyers and, and that that nature, uh, chaplains and etc. So they decided they saw the need for housing for ex prisoners because what let's say you finish your sentence, you've done 20 years or 25 years. By that point, maybe your family's all dead. You have certainly have very few community contacts. Maybe you're at a certain age and with your criminal record, you can't find a job, yet you're dropped in society. Where do you live? So you might have to live in a hostel or a flat, or you might be homeless. We've had, we have people that are homeless. So they saw this need for ex-offenders as a particular group that are uh, marginalized by society just and circumstance. So they decided to do something completely different, which was let's rent houses in the private marketplace, not worry about government. We get zero government money. Let's rent a house in the private marketplace at whatever market rate is, whatever the owner does. But we're open about, we're saying to the owner, we are going to sublet rooms in your house to ex-offenders. And we'd like you to meet them too. So you get you can see who's in your house. So that's our very first house. The very first resident we brought in, he was an elderly guy done 40 years, 40 years inside prison. 
And he saw his room and he started crying. He says, I want to die here because he had just been in, a, in, a, in a, a flop house where people were robbing him for his drugs and beating him up, his medication, robbing him for his medication, beating up. And he comes here and he said, look, we know about your criminal record. We want you to have this, this great room. We want you to move in here and whatever your days are or what do you want to do with your time? It's yours. And he started crying. And so that was very moving for me that I've made a difference to one person. Mm-hmm. So, so it was moving for me. So my promise, I thought, oh, wow, it's, this is the right path for me. So I have been pursuing that path, you know, diligently and trying to help other guys. And I, I cut a lot of guys, guys that, you know, maybe sometimes we, we probably should kick out of a house for, for certain other behavior. I talk to them. I, I do extra effort because I don't want to see someone miss this chance that we're offering. They don't have to stay with us forever, but not miss this chance. So that's what we do. So we're, we're expanding. Uh, we're not, we have three houses. We're looking at a fourth house now. And uh, so we're just renting them out, getting them in. And important to me is always let the landlord know who's living there. And I want you to meet our guys. You know, come over for a barbecue, let them barbecue for you. So you see this guy is not as scary. Yeah, he's done 30 years. He might have neck tattoos and other uh, things that a normal person, quote unquote, would, would not have, but they're not as frightening. So that they can tell their friends, hey, my, my home that I have in Toronto, I'm renting it to a bunch of ex-cons and they're great tenants. They fix the place up, they pay the bills, et cetera. So that person might go on, unconnected to RJHO, might rent to an ex-offender or give them a job or some of that nature. So it's, it's, it's sort of the pay it forward model, but you know, taking real steps to benefit the people we deal with and then maybe benefit others in society. It's such incredible work. And I mean, similar to kind of the goal of this podcast, which is actually to humanize people who've been through the system to get to see that there's a human behind that Mm -hmm. label. It sounds like what you're doing is so similar and really making such a huge impact for the people that you're able to house. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I feel blessed for the opportunity and I I give it my best effort every day, no matter, you know, 24 seven, whatever the calls come in to have to solve problems. I take them and I don't complain because I, it's part of the deal I made back in uh, Kingston Penn. So Mm -hmm. uh, good and bad, I have to keep my promises. So how can we do better as a society to support people who are reentering the community and what can sort of your average person do better? Well, you know, the average person, you know, on one level, of course, they can talk to politicians and encourage a reform of the system. They could say, you know, I'm not getting my bank for the buck, my tax dollar. You know, we're spending to keep someone in maximum security prison. It's, you know, it's a couple hundred to three hundred thousand dollars a year. Even in a minimum security prison, it's probably near one hundred thousand dollars a year. And then when they get out, they're on social assistance, which now is whatever thousands of dollars a year as a taxpayer. We need reform financially because I think, you know, I don't think we keep affording this in society. Beyond that, I think. If they have an opportunity to hire an ex-offender or they get an ex-offender who's honest about their past for a job, all things being equal, give them a try. Give them a few weeks. You know, I had guys that say they'll work for free for the first month just to show that they're not a risk to anybody and they just, they're grateful. And that's very common, actually. It's not uncommon. So do that. And for housing, all things being equal, rent to the ex-offender. If you, if you feel comfortable doing so, they'll pay their rent. They'll be very grateful. Because it's not like if I hide my past and then you give me a chance, that's not really, I, I want you to let a person be open about their past and say, you know, I am reformed. I am committed to being a better person. And then you give them a chance. It, it's reinforcing of their decision. It's reinforcing of their commitment to reform. And again, as we discussed, it helps everyone in society because discriminating against me or someone else, I've still, no one's made a good case why that after I've done my sentence, if you want, should I, I should have a longer sentence, you know, more years in prison. I'll, I'll entertain that argument. But once I finish my sentence to its completion, why are you still trying to punish me? Quote unquote, punish me in society. It doesn't help you. Yeah. 
So a question that I ask everyone who comes on this podcast, the the stigma that we were talking about, I think about it as like a label or a name tag that people who spent time in prison are almost forced to wear every day and lead with, right? It's kind of like what you were saying. You got to check the box and that box appears in so many places, not just on applications for employment, but people are looking for it in housing and everywhere else. So if you could take off, like go back to yourself as you're being released from prison, take off that label and write a new name tag that says whatever it is that you would have wanted people to know and see in who you are at that time, what would you have wanted it to say? Jeez, I, I wish they discriminated against me for being an ex-lawyer. That That's certainly a worse <laughs> worse uh, slur than ex-prisoner, right? That's what I thought. If you don't want to rent to me or give me a job because I was once a lawyer, I could understand that. I could see we, we earned that bad reputation. But as an ex-prisoner, you know, I think I'm out now. I'm not, I didn't earn a bad reputation right now for what I'm doing. Um, just see me like a regular citizen. Like in Canada, actually, ex-offenders can vote. There's no restrictions. And even when you're in prison, you can vote. There's, it's, a, some, it's structured a bit differently, but you can vote. So that's one positive step that Canada has taken to treat mm-hmm. people like regular citizens. Because if you want people to act like regular citizens, that you should treat them that way. So I think that's a positive to everyone else, just treat me like anyone you any, anyone else you'd meet on the street. I'm friendly. You're friendly, and we'll take it from there. You don't you don't owe me anything. You don't. I don't want people to think that I think society owes me something or anyone owes me anything. Just treat me like you would another stranger down the street or another stranger that applies for a job or for housing, and I'll be happy with that. I really mm-hmm. would. So if you want to reject me for a job because my application wasn't good enough or I didn't do the the test well enough, that's fine. I accept that. But if you reject me for a job because something I did 10 years ago when I've shown that I've sh- shown through my actions that I'm not that person in any way and I'm doing my best to help society every way I can, that I find is unfair. And again, it hurts you in the long run. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And so tell us just in a couple of sentences about your at restorative justice, restorative Justice Housing Ontario. They, they need a new name. They need a shorter name. Something, yeah. something more catchy. RJHO. Like yeah. RJHO, I guess. Yeah. How can people support the work that you're doing? Well, you know, we have a website. I'd like people to learn more about it and maybe pass on that website information to other people. Again, uh, so it's rjho.ca. The details there, there, there is a, you know, a PayPal or a credit card donation. Uh, it's tax deductible. So there's some financial benefit to you for doing so. You know, I know there's a lot of charity needs out there. And, I, I, you know, we're trying to, with our money in the, and the private marketplace, make a difference. So if the government took a house and put people in it, the same thing we're doing, it would cost far more than we're doing right now because a lot of people are volunteering time, volunteering effort. And, you know, I, I work for below market rates, in case anyone's wondering. So we're, we're doing that to make a difference. So we're saving the taxpayers money. So every guy I take out of a homeless shelter and put in a house and, you know, some of them that get jobs. So... I'm, I'm saving whatever government service he's being delivered. And now he's, now he's a taxpayer. So he's paying back into the system. So if you give a donation to rjho.ca, there's a plus for it. You'll get your own personal benefit, maybe a psychic benefit to you. But in the long run, if we succeed, there's a tax benefit and societal benefit. If your society is safer, someone is less inclined to commit a crime again if they have a stable place to live, they're treated with respect, than if he's a homeless person in the shelter or one person we had sleeping in a storage locker. That person is more inclined to rob someone or break something to do something negative than a person in our house who has a nice room with a TV and you know and he can cook his own meals safely. That's that's the so be selfish. Donate. I think. I think that's uh, that should be a catchphrase. I just thought of that right now. I work. I told you. I work so well under pressure. It, it scares me sometimes. So be selfish, please. Donate to rjho.ca. I love that tagline. 
Thank you so much, Joseph. Thank you. And if there's any group out there that wants me to speak, I always say yes. Uh, so my website is collardconsulting.com, C-O-L-L-A-R-E-D consulting.com. Contact me. I will say yes. And I'll put on, I'll give a hundred percent effort. And I always say my currency today, I'm not the, you know, the millionaire I once was. My currency is honesty and I'll pay it in full every time. Thank you. Thank you. A, a great talk to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. It truly means the world that you have taken time out of your day and spent it with us on our mission to shift hearts and minds and the conversation around criminality and incarceration. If you feel as passionately as we do that these stories need to be shared, there are a couple of things you can do to support the show. First, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, Check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash thefieldpodcast, where you can access more content like this. See you next time.